Take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 4. One of the great things about Genesis is that it doesn't just tell us the uh, story of creation of the world, but the beginnings of so many other things. Uh, already we've seen the, the beginnings of uh, things like marriage, uh, the beginnings of, unfortunately, sin into the world and some of its effects. Um, and today we're going to look at the beginnings of a, of a number of other things, the, the beginnings of metallurgy, the beginnings of, of, um, of musical instruments, um, and, and maybe more to, to your point uh, in, in your life, uh, the beginnings of things like cities, the beginnings of jealousy, the beginnings of crime, murder, and even more. And so uh, I do invite you to turn to Genesis. In fact, we're going to start actually in Genesis chapter 3. There's a few things that I wanted to touch on that I didn't get to cover uh, last week due to time. But in Genesis chapter 3, in verse 21, after the man and the woman had sinned and uh, they had found themselves, they discovered that uh, they had uh, actually were naked. And they were ashamed of their nakedness. And so one of the things that they did when they ate of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is that it provided them a, an ungodly wisdom. It provided them a knowledge of evil. How? By corrupting them. And so the very first thing that, they, uh, that was sort of manifested from that uh, was they had a heightened sense of eroticism. And they... Uh, decided uh, that, that they were ashamed of their nakedness before the Lord. So you know the story. They, they ate of that tree, and they hid from the Lord. And the Lord, of course, found them, which wasn't probably too difficult for the Lord to do. And, um, and then they uh, had a, a few conversations with the Lord, and the Lord doled out some punishments. And after the punishments, in verse 21, we read, Then the Lord, the Lord God made clothing... From the skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. Now, here's the interesting thing. If uh, you're really a student of Scripture, you know that earlier in verse 7 of chapter 3, they already had clothing, right? Why did the Lord provide them clothing? They already had clothing, right? You remember they found some appropriately big enough fig leaves, and they covered themselves, um, they covered up their shame. They covered their nakedness. So why in the world does the Lord provide clothing in verse 21 if it's already, they took care of it themselves in verse 7. And you see perhaps on the screen the, uh, something that I wanted to highlight for you. And it's essentially this, that the clothing that they provided themselves was not appropriate for a man or for a woman. It was essentially unisex clothing. And you and I would say not there really wasn't much clothing at all if it was leaves. Um, but look at how verse 7 describes the clothing that they provided themselves. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. It's almost as if that Scripture is going out of its way not to describe individually the man and the woman. It's simply they. So the clothing was just theirs. The clothing was simply unisex type of clothing. But that's not good enough. And so even though they already had a type of clothing, 
God's clothing that he provided in verse 21 took into account their sexuality. Look at what verse 21 says. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife. Now, we've already touched on last week how the clothing made from skins was indicative of an animal sacrifice that the Lord himself provided. And it provided a covering, an atonement, which has all types of theological ramifications. It provided a covering for their sinfulness. Now, practically, on the physical side, they were given some, some leather clothing, and, uh, and, which is pretty cool when you think about it. The first clothing really is leather clothing. Um, but beyond that... The clothing was specific to the man, and the clothing for the woman was specific to the woman. One was appropriate for a man, and another was appropriate for a woman. Today, in our society, we have an ever-increasing number of people that get this very basic fact confused. We have all types of Transdressing, cross-dressing. We even have people who want to try to become that which they are not through transgenderism. All of this, the transdressing and especially the transgenderism, it is not of God. Now, someone might say, well, doesn't God love the, the transdresser? Doesn't God love the, the transgender person? Listen. God has already proven his love for all of humanity by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross for us. That is the ultimate proof of God's love for all people. These actions, however, go against the very nature of who God has made us to be. And so if you are a man, dress like a man. If you have a boy child, Dress him like a man. Dress him like a boy, not like a girl. If you're a woman, dress appropriately like a lady. If you have a female child, dress her like a female. This subtle uh, teaching that we, that we find in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, with regard to the clothing, teaches us something even deeper than this. That women and men are not simply distinct or different physically, but we're also distinct and different spiritually. And these differences, unlike our society today, they should not be simply whitewashed away. They should not be diminished in any way. They certainly should not be destroyed in any way. But they should be celebrated. As the French person once said, viva la difference, Right? They should be celebrated that we are different from one another. And so when a man and a woman are married and those two become one, they do not become clones of each other. Far from it. They are still very distinct. The husband and the wife are still very distinct from one another. Men and women have different opinions and concerns and thoughts and strengths and weaknesses. And in a well-functioning marriage... The man and the woman are perfect complements of one another. We need each other. 
And so by clothing the man and the woman, God is providing them a spiritual covering, an atonement, if you will. He's also providing them something very practical with this leather clo- these leather clothes. God is providing them a preparation for what's about to come. So what's about to come after God clothes them? Clothes them? He is about to kick them out. They are no longer going to be in his presence in the Garden of Eden. They are going to be out in the big, bad world. The world full now because of sin. The world full of thorns and and thistles and all kinds of wild animals and all kinds of crime and all kinds of hatred of humanity, as we'll see later in this very message. God is preparing them. He's not, he didn't just kick them out of the garden. He prepared them first, out of his mercy. He gave them this clothing to prepare them. And so we read about them leaving the Garden of Eden in verses 23 and 24 of Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, in verse 23, it says, So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from that from which he was taken. And so in verse 24, very next verse, it says, He drove the man out. Now, wait a minute. What does that mean? I mean, if he already sent, he sent the man away, why, do, why is he driving the man out? What's the difference? Well, verse 23 describes the physical separation now. They are li- literally in a different physical location. The man and his wife. God sent the man away. Different location. Verse 24, the word drove is the Hebrew word for divorced. The Lord divorced the man. The Lord, what does that mean? He divorced the man. A divorce is a severing of a relationship. A once intimate personal, unique, incredible, wonderful relationship has now been severed. And you know how painful that must have been. Because if you've ever been in a relationship, you know something is true. If that relationship breaks up, it's harder the closer you were. Isn't that true? The closer the relationship, the harder the breakup Here, man was incredibly close to God. Obviously not in a marriage sense, not a romantic sense, but in a spiritual sense. God and Adam had this incredible, perfect connection until the man sinned against God and God drove him out from his presence. So now, There is a spiritual separation between God and humanity. And I want you to notice one final thing from Genesis chapter 3. I want you to notice who God holds responsible for all of this. God holds the man, Adam, responsible, not Eve. Eve's not blameless. I mean, Eve's guilty. 
But you can be guilty without holding ultimate responsibility. Eve is guilty, and so is Adam. But it is Adam that God holds responsible. I want to just review a few things with you. And, and you don't have to turn to all these passages, but in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, who was it that God gave the command to? Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Who did God give that command to? It was the man. How is marriage described in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24? Marriage is described as the man leaving father and mother. In the very next verse, the naked couple, how are they described? They are described as the man and his wife were naked and not ashamed. The couple, when they were hiding from God, they were described as what in chapter 3, verse 8? The man and his wife. God said in verse 9 of chapter 3, Where are you? Who did God ask that question to? He asked it of the man. God blamed the man for what? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. Listening to his wife instead of listening to God. Listening to your wife again is a good thing, usually. But not when God said the opposite. God held the man accountable for that. In chapter 3, verse 20, the man named his wife. The, the Lord made clothing for the man in verse 21. It says the Lord made clothing for the man and his wife. In verse 22 of chapter 3, the Lord observed that who now knew good and evil and would be like him? The man. The Lord sent who away? In verse 23 up on the screen. Sent the man away. Verse 24, who did the Lord drive away? It was the man. It's as if God's word cannot be any more clear whom God holds responsible for the spiritual welfare of the family. It is the man. Now that statement makes some people, especially some ladies, very upset. But the reality is both Scripture teaches and it's simply a truism in life that men, you set the spiritual tone for your family. It's absolutely true. Absolutely true. Men, if you are who you are supposed to be, then your wife will become who she wants to be. And by the way, you want her to be that person too. It is set by the man. Life is filled with so many people, so many men, complaining about their wives. It's almost a joke when men to get together. <laughs> my wife, oh, she's this and she's that. Oh, my wife is, is all this and my wife doesn't do that. And my wife, I'm going to complain about my wife. Listen to me, guys. If you were the man that you were supposed to be, she'd be the woman that you wanted to be. It's just true. It's absolutely true. She's following your lead. Statistically, it's proven with multiple studies that when the man 
comes to church with his family, the wife will almost always come as well as the kids. And not only will the kids come, but if the father sets the tone, the kids, when they grow up, they will go to church as well. Statistically, it's an incredible stat. If the woman brings, if the wife, the mother brings the kids to church, statistically, when the kids grow up, they will not go. There's something about following the man of the house that God has instilled into humanity. Men, you were meant to lead your wife and children spiritually. Men, you should be attending church every Sunday that it is possible. I know it's a, it's a big deal these days for everyone to skip church and to send their kids off to some type of volleyball camp and some other type of uh, baseball tournament. Do you know the chance of your child making it professionally in, in athletics? It's 0.03%. Do you know the chance of your child one day standing before God? It's 100%. Figure out where you need to be. Figure out where your family needs to be, gentlemen. Men, you should be a student of the Scriptures. Men, you should be a man who leads your family in prayer. And you might say, well, I'm not good at praying. I, I don't know where to start. Start at the dinner table. You lead your family. And if you've never prayed together as a family at the dinner table, and you say today, when you all sit down for dinner today, and you say, before we eat, I'm going to pray. They're all going to stare at you, and you're going to start praying. They're going to bow their heads. 100% chance is true. They will follow your lead. Not a person will interrupt you as you pray to the Lord. Because of the inherent authority, spiritual authority, that God has given you men, We need men to be men of God in our society and in our homes today. Men, you are to be an example to your wife of godliness. You should be an example to your wife of gentleness, an example of kindness, and an example of security. Your wife needs you to make her feel secure. Men, this is on you to do this. Now, The man and his wife were driven out of the garden. And what's the very first thing they do? They don't build a home. They don't look for cars at the dealership. They don't don't try to produce new clothing. Very first thing they do, let's have a baby. All right, so they're going to have a baby. Here we go in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now the man knew his wife Eve. That means they had intimate relations together. And she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh, the Lord. Now, this translation, the Legacy Standard Translation, I use it very intentionally because it is correct in this translation. Many translations that you read, they try to make it easy for us to understand. And they say, I have gotten a male child with the help of the Lord. But that's not what the Bible says. There is a Hebrew word for child. There's a Hebrew word for boy. There's a Hebrew word for infant. That's not the word. She said, I have gotten a man. That's literally what she said. 
I've gotten a man. What, what does that mean? Well, the word man is the same word as the word husband in Hebrew. Eve said, I have gotten a husband with the help of the Lord. You might be thinking, well, that doesn't make any sense. She already had a husband. She has a husband. It's Adam, right. And Cain's certainly not going to be her husband. What's she mean, I've gotten a husband? This is an indication that something has changed in the family, family dynamic. You see, when a child comes into a family, what's the dynamic between the husband and wife at that point? Often, the, the dynamic is this. The husband says, hey, honey, I need you. And the wife says, uh, take a number, get in line. I got, I got a baby to take care of, okay? You're secondary now. You're not primary, okay? So get at the back of the line. I'm busy taking care of this baby. And maybe I'll dole out a changing of diapers or something for you to do so you stay out of my hair, okay? That, so, you know, in the middle of the night when the baby cries, Maybe you could do something for, for a change, you know? Just help out a little bit if you can. But the whole dynamic between the husband and the wife changes. What Eve is indicating is this, just the opposite. She's indicating, I have a husband now. She's indicating her need for her husband. She is saying that this child is going to need a dad, and I, as a wife, need my husband. And as a husband, you, you need your wife. And as a dad, you need your child. She already had a husband. He hasn't changed. But she is relating her need for her husband now. Unlike the common temptation to kick the man to the side. You've done your part. Thank you so much. Now, get out of my way. I'm trying to raise a child here. She's saying, I need a husband, and I have a husband, and God has provided that through Adam. Eve is acknowledging the point that God has ordained this, that what is best for the family is when there is a man and a woman, and the child, when they are all present in the family. Kids need their dad, and dad needs his kids. A wife needs her husband, and a husband needs his wife. Well, doesn't, doesn't that child need a mom? The child has a mom. The question is, where's dad going to be? Is dad going to be hanging around? Is dad going to push her off to the side? Go after the pretty young thing that comes along? Get the trophy wife? No, it shouldn't be that way. Now, there are some times when circumstances or tragedies or choices disrupt what's best. And what a family is left with is when one of those people is missing. By God's grace, imperfection does not have to be debilitating. At the same time, what is always best is when the family can be 
complete. Well, then we come across in chapter 4, verse 2, the story of Cain and his brother Abel. So let's read about this in verses uh, 2 and 3. And again, she gave birth. Eve gave birth to his brother Abel. Abel was a keeper of flocks. I want you to remember that for in a few verses. That's the word keeper. He was a shepherd, kept flocks. But Cain was a cultivator of the ground. So it happened in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to Yahweh of the fruit of the ground. And so he produced some of the land's fruits to the Lord. Verses 4 and 5. And Abel also presented an offering. Some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious and looked despondent. What's happening here? Well, Abel's offering was some of the first fruits. It was the best. It was the firstborn, and it was the fat portions, the best of the flock. And so Abel brought what apparently, we're not told all of the details here, but what apparently God required. Abel brought God an offering of what God required. Cain's offering was insufficient. Cain brought, quote, some of the produce of the land. Abel brought the best. Then in verses 6 and 7, we read this. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you furious? And why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. When Cain's offering was second rate, he should have been repentant and gone back and offered the Lord the best. But he wasn't repentant. He became angry. He became despondent. And Cain was angry at God for rejecting his offering. But how do you kill God? You can't. So Cain simply wasn't doing the right thing. God was warning Cain. God, God knew what was in Cain's heart. God was warning Cain that his unrepentant heart would take over unless he took rule over it. You know, there comes a point in your life when you're so rebellious against God that in your rebellion and in your sinfulness, it's almost as if you're not doing it. You're just long for the ride. It's my sin. It's my, it's my problem. It's my issue. It's my desires. They just like take over my life, I've heard people say. Cain was right at the edge of that. And when you're at that point, you, you're about ready to give yourself over to your most base instinct. So Cain, he was upset. In the next verse, verse 8, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. Cain's setting him up. This is premeditated murder. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. This is the first instance of death of a human that we have in Scripture. Can you imagine being Adam and Eve, knowing 
that you've brought death into this world, but you're still alive. You haven't experienced it yet. And the very first death of humanity is your son. Not you. It's not supposed to be that way. Parents aren't supposed to bury their kids. But that's what Eve and Adam had to experience. Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Cain couldn't kill God, so he killed his brother whom he was jealous of. His anger, his unrepentant heart turned him into a murderer. In verse 9 we read, Then Yahweh, the Lord, said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? That keeper that you made, Lord, the keeper of flocks, am I his keeper? Cain was being sarcastic. Cain was being a liar. He knew what had happened. The same sin that caused, that ruled Cain's heart now caused him to, to lie directly to the Lord. In verses 10 through 12, the Lord said, What have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain was a farmer. But now if he worked the ground, it wasn't going to produce any yield. This is going to turn Cain into a, a vagabond, a wanderer, a fugitive on the earth. And Cain, like most criminals, complains about his punishment. In the next few verses, Cain answered the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth, I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will, will kill me. Cain is rightfully concerned that someone might kill him, especially if the Lord doesn't protect him. And by the way, you might wonder, where are these other people coming from? They might kill him, you know. Well, we don't know exactly how much time has passed, but apparently enough time has passed, and they, we know they lived long enough that um, population had greatly increased, and Cain was worried at this time. Verses 15 and 16. Then the Lord replied to him, In that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain, so that whoever found him would not kill him. Then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod east of Eden. Now, a couple of things to note. God gave Cain seven times protection. Okay? Special protection for Cain. God placed a mark on Cain. Not black skin. That's stupid. That's the, that's the theological term. Stupid. That, that's dumb. Why, why do we know it's dumb? Cain's family is going to have a little bit of an issue trying to survive the flood. Okay? And uh, beyond that, 
um, unlike the Mormon church, which historically has taught that people with darker skin are cursed by God. That's just, that's just absolutely false. Absolutely false. Verses, uh, verse 17. Cain was intimate with his wife. And she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. Then Cain became, became a builder of a city, and he named the city Enoch after his son. And you might say, well, wait a second. You know, here's this population issue again. Where did Cain's wife come from? You know, this is sort of a, sort of a gross thing. Where, where's Cain's wife coming from, preacher? Well, it was obviously the one of uh, Adam's later daughters. Uh, Genesis chapter 5, verse 3 tells us that Adam and Eve had uh, further daughters and sons, or it may have been one of the child, one of the children of one of these other daughters and sons. And you might say, well, that's, that seems to be inappropriate. Isn't that wrong to, you know, get married to someone that close to you? Uh, well, yes, it is now. It is now. Uh, today, uh, there's 3.5 billion people on the face of the earth that are not your sex. Uh, go find one of them. You know, you don't need to... Uh, be with any of your family members. So, in fact, by the time of Moses, this kind of close marriage relationship was formally forbidden by the Lord. But initially, that's how the human race had to have come about. Genesis chapter 4, verse 18. Erad was born to Enoch. Erad fathered Mahuyael. Mahuyael fathered Methushael. And Methushael fathered Lamech. I've been working on that verse for a long time. We come across this guy named Lamech. We're going to have a few verses about him. What's the big deal about Lamech? Well, we're going to find out. Lamech was a bad guy. I mean, he was a bad dude. Not as bad as Corn Pop, but he was a bad dude, you know? And so in verse 19, Lamech took two wives for himself. One named Adah and the other named Zillah, time out, two wives. I didn't know that was an option. It's not supposed to be. God established the standards for marriage, one man and one woman, and a companion of covenant ship for life. But Lamech, he thought he knew better. He was worthy of two wives. He took two wives for himself. Now, Ancient Jewish tradition theorizes that one of Lamech's wives was for family. She was a good mom. And the other one was for pleasure. She was the trophy wife. She had a nice figure. Okay? Now that's, and if that's true, then what Lamech was trying to do was separate sex from procreation. Which again is not God's plan. Sounds like our culture. He wanted the pleasure Without the responsibility, sounds a lot like God's plan. Or, or, excuse me, sounds like our culture, I should say. Cain's descendants apparently followed his example. What was his example? Polygamy? Sometimes. Sometimes they followed that example. But the real example uh, Cain had set was disregarding God's order and doing your own thing. And it's funny that when someone in a family has that as their life's motto... The children seem to turn out that way more often than not. Nothing's a given, but we have an incredible responsibility to our children to live godly lives. Lamech's polygamy was the first step in the downward spiral leading directly to the flood. And this portrait of Lamech in the larger narrative 
of the flood, it teaches us a very important lesson, that following your own instincts leads to destruction. What we are to follow is the Word of God. We must follow God's command always. Now, if indeed one of Lamech's two wives was simply for pleasure, he, he didn't do a real good job because both of them had kids. And so we read about that in verses 20 and 22. Adah bore Jabel, and he was the first of the nomadic herdsmen. His brother was named Jubal. Jabal and Jubal. And he was the first of all who played the lyre and the flute, musical instruments. Zillah bore Tubal Cain, who made the first, uh, who, who made all kinds of bronze and iron tools, and Tubal Cain's sister was Nama. Next two verses. Lamech said to his two wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. That's a great thing. Try that sometime. See how that works for you, men. <laughs> hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, pay attention to my words. See how important he is. For I killed a, I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is to be avenged seven times over, then for Lamech, it will be 77 times. Here he goes again, just like with polygamy. Lamech is going far beyond God's boundaries. A man wounded Lamech, so he killed him. That's not proportionality. That's taking things to an extreme. But that's what Lamech does. I get two wives. I killed a man. Why? Because he bruised me. And then God had said that he would avenge Cain's death seven times over. But Lamech thinks he is so important that should he be killed, his death should be avenged 77 times. Lamech is in no position to make such a declaration. Only the Lord is. But Lamech is full of himself. Well, then we have the line of Seth. In verse 25, we read, Adam was intimate with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has given me another offspring in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Here's the picture. Abel is gone, and now Cain, he's gone. He's away from Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are alone again. So God graciously continues the scarlet thread of redemption by giving them another child, a godly son named Seth. And it is through Seth that we understand that ultimately God's promise to the couple and his curse of the serpent would be fulfilled through Christ. In Genesis 3.15, God said again, I will put hostility between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. An obvious reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, in Luke chapter 3, in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, Luke traces it back all the way through Seth. A godly line through Seth. Verse 26 a son was born to Seth also, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. It's an interesting way to end the chapter. 
At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. It wasn't just one man calling on the name of the Lord, but people. Why? Because the more people saw the wickedness of humans, the wickedness of the line of Cain, even the wickedness of their own heart, the more they realized they needed to cry out to God for mercy, for help, for grace. The same lesson holds true today. If today you need God's mercy and grace, if today you're looking around at the society and you're saying, what is happening in this world? There's so much wickedness and perversion and, and destruction of innocence. What is going on in this world? You look at the wickedness of your own heart and you're, you're, you're thinking, I, I don't want to be who I've become. I'm impatient. I'm rude. I'm unkind. I have sin upon sin against God. God, call, answer my call, Lord. Would God save someone like me? How can I be saved? The way that you and I can be saved is by answering to the one who laid down his life for us. The one that Genesis 3.15 talks about. The seed of the woman who crushed the serpent's head on the cross. Jesus is the very Son of God coming to this world. He died on a cross for you and me. And if you and I will believe in him and follow him, we can have eternal life.